When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Eagle Moss Hero Collector and the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection. The first ships in the collection, including the Orville itself, are available now at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase with free shipping. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 386, A Time to Stand. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at how every season of Deep Space Nine turns, 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 and look for how each episode has a time, a time of war, a time of peace. This week, a time to stand, figuratively, as our heroes must find a way to stand against the Dominion and... Literally, as they have to do so in a very cramped, captured Jem'Hadar warship. But before we get to that, here is how you can contact us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Your reviews at Apple Podcasts help other people find the show, and we do appreciate it. You can also reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, as trivia turns, 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 <laughs> here is a season of John Champion with this week's trivia. I'm just going to have the birds in my head this entire episode. <laughs> That's what will happen. All right. Trivia for today's episode of Time to Stand. This was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler. So remember at the end of last episode, well, we said goodbye to Robert Hewitt Wolf at the end of season five. That was the end of his tenure as a writer-producer on DS9. Um, so it makes sense here that Ira would continue the story and do so with another veteran DS9 writer, Hans. Uh, we also have a continuation in the respect of Alan Croker. He directed this one. Uh, of course, a wise choice since here, since Alan had just wrapped up last season by shooting the previous episode. Now, you probably notice at the beginning of today's episode, there is a Brandon Tartikoff memorial. Uh, now, for anyone who doesn't follow the ins and outs of network television corporate drama, Brandon Tartikoff was an absolutely legendary TV executive. 
He started young, and uh, a job at ABC led him to becoming head of programming at NBC, then president of that network's entertainment division during its golden years of the 1980s. Some of the best love shows at that time were brought in under his direction. Miami Vice, The Golden Girls, Family Ties, Seinfeld, The Cosby Show, Cheers. He started ushering those in at the ripe old age of 32. Now, after his stint at NBC, Brandon worked at a number of places, but one of the most prominent was Paramount, where he also went to hand in the development of Deep Space Nine. That's why this episode pays tribute right after he had passed away at the age of 48 in 1997. Some interesting episode details. What a dramatic moment when Cisco smashes a glass top table with his fist in the opening. So normally you do that kind of thing with what they call candy glass in the industry. It literally used to be made out of sugar. Uh, and that's what you use for gags like that or, or, you know, breaking a bottle over someone's head. It just falls apart into harmless pieces instead of dangerous shards. This scene was not that, though. It was an accident. That was a real glass table, and he broke it, but it was so dramatic, they decided to keep it in the episode. All right, so, John, you're basically saying that if anyone wants to give Leonardo DiCaprio credit for doing the first on-screen glass-breaking act-through-it scene, right. Avery now, Brooks did it first. Yep, yeah, he's got to contend with Avery Brooks. <laughs> so, now, uh, there is a ship in this episode, uh, not just any ship, the ship. From the episode The Ship, uh, the one with the ship in it. You remember that, right? It's the one where Cisco and crew stood their ground over a crashed Jem'Hadar fighter while Avorda and Jem'Hadar soldiers tried to take it to get to the dying founder who was inside. So, you know, that, that of course, makes this episode a little bit of a sequel to that one as well as a sequel to the previous Oh, uh, by the way, Norman, did you notice the star chart that Admiral Ross uses when they're in the starbase? Funny enough, he walks by it, and yes, it is chart number 4747. And then when he gets to the other side where the coordinates are, one of the coordinates is something something dash 347. So they just went all in on the 47s for this episode. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about guest stars. Uh, just like the previous episode, we're really leaning into DS9's strength of having that core group of frequently visited guest stars. Jeffrey Combs, Mark Alimo, Andy Robinson, Aaron Eisenberg, J.G. Hertzler, Casey Biggs, they are all there as they were last time around. We do have another visiting guest star, uh, seen here only on a view screen, but that would be Brock Peters returning as Ben's father, Joseph Sisko. And we do meet somebody new, Admiral Ross, played here by Barry Jenner. Born in Philadelphia, Barry had a nice long run in daytime and evening soap operas in the 70s and 80s, then found himself in a number of recurring roles in shows as disparate as Family Matters and, well, Deep Space Nine, where we will be seeing a good deal more of him right up until the end. He even reprises his role as Admiral Ross in the 2001 DS9 video game Dominion Wars. Barry was a reserve officer in the Los Angeles Police Department for 21 years. He passed away in 2016. It's a war out there, but surely this will only last an episode or two. Right? Prologue. 
There was a really big battle, several of them, in fact, between the Federation and the Dominion. It lasted more than two months and left the Federation a ragtag fleet. You'll have to trust us, though, although that happened off-screen. Now what we have are the remnants of those battles and a demoralized crew aboard the Defiant, one of the lucky surviving ships. There is some good news. Martok and his crew have survived and have now rendezvoused with the Defiant. There's bad news, too. The seventh fleet that had engaged the Jem'Hadar have been reduced from 112 to just 14 ships. They're losing the war. Act 1. Back on DS9, <coughs> Tarak Nor, Gul Dukat is soaking in the victory of it all. The Cardassians are back, under Dominion rule, of course, and here he is in charge of his old station again. Weyun is pleased that activity has returned as well with more Bajorans on board. As a show of good faith, Major Kira suggests that Bajoran security guards should be instated too, but that is a non-starter with Dukat. Weyun has other concerns, though. The minefield that is still in front of the wormhole, which is going to prevent the needed reinforcements and shipments of Ketracel White from coming through, he needs Dukat to take care of it. Now. Kira has opportunity to discuss what's going on with Odo when they're at Quark's bar. They're both concerned that it's only a matter of time before Cardassians occupy and enslave the Bajorans again, a reason Kira really wants to push, with Odo's help, for a Bajoran security patrol. From where Quark sits, this occupation isn't so bad, though. Sales are all right, there are no Bajoran workers or starving children, things could be worse, and what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? The Defiant has been called to Starbase 375, where Captain Sisko gets the news from Admiral Ross that he is being relieved of his command. Act 2. Why, you may ask, which is exactly what Dax asks, and nobody knows yet. With some downtime, Ben calls his father. There's Joseph in his restaurant kitchen back on Earth, and he wants to know why in the hell Jake is still on the station by himself under Dominion control while Ben is out there on his mission. Ben says he'll bring him home, though. He promises. What is Jake up to? Well, he's been writing stories for the Federation News Service about the occupation, and it turns out none of those articles have been sent to his editor. Weyun is in control of what leaves the station, and he thinks Jake's stories aren't fair or balanced enough. The very idea of calling this an occupation, when they are standing on a Cardassian station, and no Dominion forces are on Bajor. No, the stories won't be sent until Weyun approves, which means any interview is definitely off. So back to Captain Sisko, and he's getting his new orders from Admiral Ross. Starfleet have found a major storage facility of Ketracel White, which is a major supply they can cut off from the Jem'Hadar. Captain Sisko and his crew will take the facility out, and they won't go there in the Defiant but rather in the Jem'Hadar fighter that they stole last year. Act 3. They've got a bit of work to do, and not much time to prepare the fighter and somehow get acclimated to flying the thing. Not to mention, there are very few creature comforts on board, like biobeds, chairs, or even a view screen, which necessitates Captain Sisko to use a headset. Along for the ride is Garrick, who could very well come in handy, 
In what was Cisco's office on the station, there's Ducat and Cisco's baseball. And the gull wants an audience with Major Kira. He's pushy. He's trying to get under her skin. And maybe he's trying to get some acceptance or even affection from her. Of course, it's not working. Kira sees through him and her disgust is palpable. Back on the mission, Cisco is having a side effect from the headset. It causes a headache. Garrick steps in to volunteer to use it, just in case Cardassian physiology is less prone to those adverse effects. Just then, an alert. The USS Centaur is closing in and opening fire on the Jem'Hadar fighter. Act 4. See, that's the problem when you're flying an empty ship toward enemy territory and trying to be sneaky about it. Your own people may mistake you for the enemy, just as Captain Charlie Reynolds of the Sindar does. With communications down, they'll just have to fight their way out, which, fortunately, they don't have to do for very long. The Sindar heads off when three more Jem'Hadar ships show up to chase it off. Lucky them. Now Cisco and crew can carry on with their mission and hope the best for Captain Reynolds. Turning our attention to Tarak Nor, Major Kira is privately trying to get Odo to live by the Ghostbusters rule. If Wayun thinks Odo is a god, then say you're a god. More importantly, say you'd like to have a say in station security, like adding some Bajorans to the team. And you know what? He does exactly that. Over Dukat's objections, Wayun totally capitulated to Odo's request. Of course, there is something Odo can do for Wayun. He'd like him to join the station's ruling council, just the three of them, Wayun, Dukat, and Odo. When Odo tells Kira the news, they're both concerned. He'll be in position to be manipulated, but he asks Kira's cooperation to help him. Now, Sisko and crew have arrived at the storage facility, an asteroid with a base on it, surrounded by a force field, Garrick listens in on station chatter, and they make their move after seeing how the other ships before them proceeded. Their plan is simple. Beam down empty canisters of Ketracel White. Only one of them will have a time bomb in it. Seems to go okay. But before Sisko can have his ship jump to warp, the Jem'Hadar security net catches them and won't let go. Act 5 with the bomb set to detonate, Cisco and crew are trapped and running out of time to jump away. Their only option is to be very clever. When the bomb goes off, the security net will be disabled. If they can speed away in the interim before the explosion swallows them up too, then they'll be able to get away. So, time between explosion and security net, plus time to engage warp over safe distance, carry the tech the tech, they've got it. Just one problem. The explosion occurs way too soon, so go to warp now, 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 now. They do. It's messy, but they make it. That's the power of math, people. Everyone is alive, but there's another problem. The explosion knocked out the Jem'Hadar ship's warp drive, and that means they'll have to hobble back to the closest Federation starbase on a trip that will take about 17 years. The end. Well done, John. Very nice Thank summary you. of the episode. I do appreciate you crossing the streams, if <laughs> there, you will. There, there was a little bit of crossing the streams, yes. <laughs> of several different references. <laughs> so starting off with the observations, 
one of the things that I do remember about Deep Space Nine when when my friends were first watching it in the 90s, they said that it's the first Star Trek series that introduced individual fighter ships mm. instead of large, obviously large starships. So I really like seeing those the fighter ships that were tugging the Excelsior class ship. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought those were super super cool. Yeah, and, and still some Klingon ships in the mix there, and just a you know a lot of ships. and And I had mentioned in the last episode that you know this we're looking at some of the last footage that was done purely with model work, and oh. I, I really appreciate that. You know, it, to me, it is a lost art, and uh, it's not to say that CG artists aren't talented as well. It's a different mm-hmm. skill set, but. Um, yeah. I really miss the idea that that stuff was built by hand, photographed in a physical environment, and then, you know, 20, 30, or depending on the show, 50 years later, you can go see that model that somebody Mm -hmm. filmed back then. So If it survived, I mean, when you really think about it, they have one, maybe two passes at a shot like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or they have to reset the entire sequence. Right. Exactly. It's painstaking work. Um, So enjoy it, everybody. Speaking of models, uh, we had a way better look at regular one (laughs) than the old footage that we had in Pleas of Glory. That that was nice. Uh, Although I couldn't quite like the scale of the station next to the Defiant kind of threw me off a little bit. I'm sure obviously they did their homework before they did it, but that did throw me off a little bit still. Great-looking composite, great-looking shot. Um, but since we're on regular one, let's let's talk about that view screen in Cisco's office. I mean, mm-hmm. his, his father is looking at him dimensionally as if he's looking at him in the room. It, it's just, it, it's odd. It's weird to me. They're on flat screens. Presumably the camera is right in front of you, and yet he's looking off to the side as if there's a little Cisco walking around over there. It's yeah, yeah. I thought that was weird too. It kinda, yeah, it, it it threw my it threw my viewing angle askew. Yeah, yeah. We we had mentioned that a long time ago on Next Gen. There is a scene where I believe it's Picard talking to a Ferengi or something, and and you kind of see the same thing. And of course, fans love to retcon like, oh, it's holographic, three D. This blah 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 blah. But it sure. just looks weird. It looks like a mistake. Uh, but one yeah. thing, I, honestly, the reason that I'm bringing up that shot is that um, it's always interesting to me where you can tell that the production is picking and choosing their battles about saving some money. So in the scenes with uh, that star chart behind Admiral Ross, it's a print. It's just, it's practical. We don't have to do any compositing or effects. Blow that image up, print it big, throw it up on the wall, we're good. In this, you need to have a live video like you know person on the other end of the call so notice that whenever we're looking directly at the screen ben is to the side with just his shoulder overlapping the frame of the monitor but never actually in the video feed of joseph and that's because it allows a way easier insert of the video footage or in this case shot on film but film footage of joseph as opposed to Ben standing in front of the screen and maybe moving around, and you have a mm-hmm. way less forgiving composite to do then. So um, right. 
you know, we, we take stuff like that by grant, uh, for granted because you'll see very often now a shot of an actor in front of a screen moving around like it's no big deal. That kind of compositing, way easier to do now. But back then, right. you're mapping out a shot like that and you just go, hmm, we've got a monitor. It's got a frame. Do the cutout and just stick it in there. Do not allow an actor to move in front of that. Or else right. it'll ruin our effect. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it right now. And you and I are actually recording this on Zoom. I have a green screen background right. that the algorithm of Zoom itself is is clipping. Doing that in real and time. And I'm moving yeah. Yeah. in real time. This is way more sophisticated yep. than the actual highest level of technology that they had in 1990. What was this, seven? Uh, seven yeah. Eight. yeah, yeah, 98. yeah, 98, yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, being able to – and they have to do some of those overlays, those composites – block those out, send those things to development, composite on top of that in 480, and then recomposite the entire film, time it right, color it right, and then send it back. Right. So that's a lot of production work just for a little bitty back and forth effect that we take for granted, you're right, today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here's something that we take for granted, though, John. Yep. We take Nog for granted. We do. Because why is Nog there in the middle of a war He's a cadet, right? And he's supposed yeah. to be at Starfleet. So why is he there? I, you know, the only way that I can think of it is just that. Well, you're here. Uh, you've been through Starfleet training of some sort. <laughs> Come on, it's war, kid. Here we go. I mean, yeah. I know. I mean, I love seeing Aaron there. Believe yeah. me, I love yeah. Nog. But I just wish they would write in something to his specific skill set, like when he decoded that message from Kira's assassins. Like, he would be, like, why isn't he just, like, manning communications all the time? Because he can obviously, you know, decipher uh, decibel levels, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, digital signatures, things of that nature. He might even be able to decode subspace transmissions that nobody else can hear. Right, right. That's kind of where I want him to be as opposed to what he was doing yeah i don't you know it's just a weird thing for me because it is war yeah right it's, yeah you don't exactly. throw an ensign on top of uh, your most advanced ship i'm just saying except for here uh, by the way uh j- just a correction before it. You- you're right this episode was late 97 it was september of 97 not not 98 mm-hmm. don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much there um even so though it's not like the technology improved that uh, much i know right the right year. Yeah. Y- you know uh several episodes ago we had gooey bashir I, I do like to say that I, I like now ruggedly casual Bashir, too. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got the sleeves pushed up, got the shirt unzipped. I, yep. I sense a cosplay coming up. He, he is, it's interesting to me, he is more serious in this episode. And I really like that there's payoff for the reveal of his genetic enhancements. And I know that there will be more to come. No letters, please. But it, it's one of those smart things that in the script... You know, we introduce this that is uh, really like a matter of convenience for an episode a while back, and then you can revisit it here. And I just feel like now after this season break, this feels like a different Bashir. Mm-hmm. He's grown a lot already, but man, they just uh, he he hits the ground running right from the top of this episode. You just see that here's somebody who has been worn down by what's going on around him. More on that later. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna. I, I have. I have a lot to talk about with that scene because it impressed me so much, and uh, Sid impressed me so much on just how he had this huge kind of like character tonal shift right at the very beginning. I thought it was a really interesting choice. Yeah, uh, I like the the little bit of uh, humor with Martok and just being completely like nagged to death by 
by Worf and because of <laughs> you know Worf's obsession with his upcoming wedding plans during the war. Yeah, uh, but I thought it was funny because uh, JG and and Michael Dorn and and, and uh, Terry they they play that scene off really nicely and it, it was like un, nice unforced humor. It was very natural. I like it. And it kind of helped alleviate a little bit of the stress of the beginning. It, it's a good scene. Things. And oddly enough, I'm going to revisit that in the next segment because I, I've got like an oddly serious take on it. So hmm. let, let, let's come back and talk about okay. that, too. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah, that, that was good stuff. It just there's a lot of good writing in this episode. Uh, Weyoun is going on about Bajorans returning to the station. The promenade is abuzz with children. Uh, they're laughing. And then I love the cut of uh, Damar. I've doubled the security patrol. <laughs> Just like perfect timing, perfect way yeah. to, to cap that. You know, I really liked how they started off this episode with Dukat's personal log instead of uh, Starfleet personal log. That was very cool. Yeah. It just, it's kind of like one of those episodes of tv where you know it's going into a different tone so they have like a different opening credits and it's just mm-hmm. like a one-off but it does set the tone that yes we are starting in this war in terak nor in this entire cardassian occupied station deep space nine former deep space yeah. nine and it cements the fact that he's kind of crowing a little bit right yeah right you know, he's just like yeah i'm in charge yo yeah yeah totally the other uh, nice little bit of writing uh speaking of Dukat. Um, Kira leaves the room and he says, she's a fascinating woman, isn't she? And Wayun says, I wouldn't know. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I mean, there are so many ways you can read that. And Jeffrey Combs being an actor who can just find every layer of subtext, um, I'll just leave it there. I, I think there there are so many ways to interpret that and and all of them are valid. Him in any scene of any extended period of time is like watching a masterclass in acting. Truly. Yep. And especially with Wayun, because Wayun is so devious and deceptive, but also sincere at the same time. You're not even really sure like if you want to believe him, disbelieve him, punch him or brace him. Mm-hmm. All in the same sentence. You know, it's just he's that good. Yeah. He really is that good. Truly. Yeah. It's funny. I it, when they were talking about the uh the the grid of minds, I just kept picturing the Cardassian fleet playing whack-a-mole. With these self-replicating <laughs> minds. I think that's such a brilliant conceit that they have at all. And I love Quark schmoozing the Jem'Hadar at the bar. You know, the hollow suites, and, and they're just not buying it. And, and he wishes he had a hollow imager. Still, I mentioned this before, it's still just a funny thing to me since now, like, cameras are built into everything. <laughs> yeah, everywhere, yeah. all the time. And, and now Kira and Odo talking while they're at the bar... Uh, that's, I just want to point out a directorial thing. It is a well-acted, but also a well-shot scene. Um, there's just very subtle camera dolly in front of them. And that scene plays out for a long time before there's a cut. You know, go back mm-hmm. and watch it. You notice it. I, I just, I love that kind of thing where you let the actors have some room, take some time. With most modern shows, modern movies, the cuts come very fast, usually less than seven seconds per shot, and you're cutting to a new shot. This was a nice long time that we got to see them do their thing. Also, from a uh, costuming and makeup standpoint, I really do like Kira's hair Mm. in this opening Mm -hmm. episode. Probably my second favorite hairstyle of hers since, say, like season two. When it was a little more Sheena Easton. Oh, yeah, know, yeah, right. More, or a little bit more uh, Zool. 
uh, Gozer. <laughs> well, yeah. Good call. Yes. Yeah. Just that, that, uh, it, I don't know. It just, it fits her well. Uh, the lighter hair, the, the redder hair tone fits her well. Obviously it yeah. fits the tone of her uniform. So I, I'd like returning her to more of a, of a red tone. Yeah. Um, uh, Cork. Yeah. You know, he doesn't miss a beat. <laughs> You mentioned it before, but I, I do think that there's a, a very Casablanca-esque, you know, um, World War II style of of a story that's being told here. Like, yes. imagine that they are in uh, they're in Morocco, you know, yeah. or uh, French unoc- unoccupied France, mm-hmm. where you're having kind of like Nazis walk openly in a bar uh, along with other people, other citizens trying to flee, and then all of a sudden, you know, a uh, court comes in and he says, you know. I stick my latinum out for nobody. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I, I honestly, again, we don't read each other's notes. I had the same thought. You know, he, he's like, Rick, he'll he'll welcome anybody, you know, a Nazi, Vichy, resistance, whatever. Their money spends and they're there to drink his drinks. Fine. You know, we just have to we just have to wait and see if there is some sort of principle that he'll stick by. See, and this is where if Quark was Rick, Mm-hmm. Then if Garrick was on the station still, Garrick, to me, would he just feel so much like Louis. Yes. Because, you know, he would say that line, like, I'm shocked, shocked, shocked to find gambling going on here. <laughs> right. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you. That's so him. Right. Right? He has, Absolutely. Oh, my love for Andrew Robinson has no end, as many of you know. <laughs> it's such a good line where Ben is asking Joseph, his father, how's the restaurant? Pretty good. It's been three weeks since I poisoned anybody. <laughs> Just a, a throwaway, but but it, it shows some humor between them uh, about a very serious thing. You know, talking about Jake, but uh, yeah, nice moment. As much as I love Kira's hair, that's mm-hmm. like a production plus for me. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of a production minus or a nitpick that I had. So when the Defiant crew like uh, disembarks for the station and in Cisco is briefed by Admiral Ross. Everyone's wearing the new uniforms but him. So why is that? Mm. Oh, that's, because yeah. it's, it's not like the uniforms just got dropped on us. That happened in you know at the beginning of season five, the transition. I think it was in the right. beginning of season five, right? Or it, maybe it was the end of season four. Oh, it, midway through season four. Yeah, yeah, Sorry. yeah. yeah. It, yep. it was. It was after the break. Yep. So, and you also had it in the movies. So Starfleet has already transitioned in uh, mass to these new uniforms, right? But we also in the episode where where Cisco was trying looking for, uh, he was looking for that um, where the artifacts uh, original oh, uh, location was. Sure, yeah. That admiral also, or, or yeah, it was an admiral. His friend also was wearing the command red still. Huh. So I'm just wondering why those were never transitioned into say an admiral's version. I know it will be. Yeah, but, right, right. Yeah, you know. But that that but, is a weird thing that it seems like it's been enough time that yeah, that that's what I would that. think. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Maybe not everybody got the memo. Yeah. I, I mentioned that uh, I was going to talk a little bit about technology. And, and there is sort of a weird technology thing here. It, it's one of those things where, you know, our view of the future is always limited by our technology today. You know, we, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what it is that will be invented that leads to the next thing to be invented. So I thought it was very interesting to see our crew struggling with the commands of the Jem'Hadar ship. You know, they've had the ship for a while for Starfleet to kind of pick apart, retrofit, figure out what all the components do. And I kept thinking, how would you do this in real life? 
I mean, we have apps now, literally like on your phone, where you can point your phone at text in one language, and in real time, it translates to another language. And we have augmented reality glasses, which you'd think, you know, wouldn't be a limited thing to just a navigator on board a Jem'Hadar vessel. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so Starfleet would have a ton of those things hanging around. Like, oh, yeah, they're using a, uh, you know, a heads-up augmented uh, glasses system. Here, we've got a hundred of them for you. Put them on and they'll link to the camera system on the outside of the ship. Now, I understand that within the context of telling a story in a show like this, you're creating obstacles for your crew to get around. So this is one of those that plays natural. It plays as sort of very obvious. But at the same time, it is thought like, well, could you, is it believable to an audience now in the early 21st century just to say like, yeah, we've got technology to get us past that hurdle. Now let's just move on with the rest of the story. I think that's always been a challenge for Star Trek in, in every iteration because, say, for instance, every almost like Star Trek begats the technology that the fans of the show, when they become professional, like technical engineers or designers, they use what they learned from Star Trek to create the tech future, mm-hmm. which becomes now in the past. And then Star Trek gets another iteration, and that tech of the future becomes something of the past. So right. it's like we had touchscreen LCARS technology in 86 or 87 with the next generation. And that obviously inspired the technology for touchscreens in cell phones and pads and things of that nature. Pads became a real technology. But then we go to Enterprise, which predates the technology from the next generation. Right. They're still using analog buttons. Right. But that was in 2000. And we already had touchscreens technology in 2007. But Enterprise is supposed to be 150 years from that. So it's just like it's never it's a never ending uh, loop yeah. of of just trying, you're right, trying to predict what the technology of the future is going to be based on the technology that we have and, and, the, yeah. and the imagination of what they're going to do. Right, right. And the goal of the story is to tell, you know, an engaging, fun story that has drama, that has tension, that has, like I said, obstacles for the characters to get past. So you're picking and choosing what those things are. That one seems like a natural, yeah. but then you, you look back at it and you go like, hmm, okay, well, if we had skipped that, does that allow us to have something else? Or do we just are, are we really married to this idea so we're going to stick with it? I have to believe at the time when the writers are, are crafting the story, they're like, you know what would be really cool? X. Because X doesn't exist. Yeah, right. Right, right. Yeah. And, and while we're at it, just put chairs on the bridge. Just, <laughs> just go get some chairs. I'm sure they have some at uh, Starbase 375. And, and while you're at it, bring a replicator. Just They got little ones. Uh, sure. uh, Kevin Uxbridge has one he's probably not using anymore, so uh, get that. <laughs> and, but but a good reference there to O'Brien and his uh, love of field rations. <laughs> so mm-hmm. at least we have that. You know, at the end, one of my favorite um, scenes, and, and it's just a very small part, but it was very significant, I think, is that it's when Odo and Kira clasp hands in Quarks yes. when they finally realize that they're still with each other and they're supporting each other. And they're still on the same side and they're on the same wavelength because that's where we wanted to get to in the previous episode, the the season finale of season five, A Call to Arms, where they just kind of laughed away the troubles that they have. Right. But now they realize that they have to support each other. They have to have each other's backs because it is game time. And what they did there, just that little, this, this <laughs> to quote Spock, you know, this simple act Yes. It it, it spoke volumes without saying anything. 
If the bridge of the Jem'Hadar ship is that uncomfortable, I don't even want to think about what the brig is like. We will take a time to stand in a moment, but first, a word from Eagle Moss and the Orville official Starships collection. You know it's perfect on stands, if we're taking a stand on stands? What is that, Norman? Miniature ships from Eagle Moss. And this time, we're talking about the Orville Eagle Moss special collector ships. Now, these are developed in partnership and based on Seth MacFarlane's hit science fiction comedy drama, The Ship's from the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection. And they're available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. Now, the first ships in this collection are the Planetary Union ship, the USS Orville, the ECV-197, and its shuttle, the ECV-197-1. They're available right now directly from the Eagle Moss shop for only $29.95 each and with free shipping. There's even an oversized XL edition of the Orville, and it's gorgeous, and it's detailed, and it has its own stand so you don't have to take a stand on it having its own stand. And this one is available for $74.95. No matter what you order, use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. You know, you've heard us say it before, and it's true every time. There's so much to love about these. Uh, these models are based on careful studies of either the original, you know, production materials, models, or CG renderings. Uh, they, they are made out of high-quality die-cast metal and high-quality ABS materials. And, of course, they are hand-painted for stunning accuracy. And, Norman, I haven't talked enough about this recently, but you mentioned it. All these ships come with a display base. The stand, the stand is one of the coolest parts mm-hmm. of the ship because it holds it up almost invisibly and allows you to take the model out for easy examination. Plus, every model comes with a collector's magazine filled with concept art and interviews and behind-the-scenes details, this time of the Orville TV series. Now, there will be more ships coming. Yes, they are slated to join the collection soon, but right now, These are the ones that you want to get while you still can. So full details, including comprehensive views of each ship and ordering information can be found at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. All right, it's that time. Time to take a stand. And I I feel like, hmm... I feel like there are so many directions we could go with this. We could have picked one and just done the whole episode about it. So we'll we'll maybe pick and choose a handful here, and I'm sure that our listeners will be able to chime in with even more. The first thing that struck me in the last episode, I treated it as sort of a a weird topic because the episode wasn't really about it, didn't spend a whole lot of time there. But let's talk about Jake's journalism career because, boy, does that come back. Again, in a very short scene, um, and it wasn't a major plot point, but it's a moment. It's a moment for Jake, and there is some payoff here um, in his journey and what he's been going through. So he's running into a very ugly truth about journalism. He's worried about having to coddle the sensitive interview subject who's worried about how he's portrayed in the press. And it's a very fine line indeed. You don't get access unless you have the reputation and respect of the people that you need to interview. But you don't get those if they're upset with the way that you write. 
I think that Jake, I, this is just my idea if I were his editor. Of course, his editor has no idea what Jake's up to. He, the, the editor probably just thinks Jake is slacking on the job <laughs> and now he's going to get fired, you know. But I I would almost say like, okay, we're just going to do strict Q&A because handled correctly, more people have sunk themselves with their own words that way because they didn't realize that saying everything on their mind isn't always a good idea. So that's it. If I'm Jake's editor, I'm just say do this. Just just tell Wayun you're gonna run tape. You know, let him say whatever he wants. It'll just be Q and A, and that's what we'll publish. Done. You know, I, I like this point too. This is something that I brought up as well, and it and it struck me as being interesting in this episode because I felt that Jake is smarter than this, and being the station chief's son. He knows that diplomacy wins out more often than not. And I think that he's kind of being a little too gung-ho about being a war correspondent as opposed to trying to trying to get the information out from behind enemy lines. And I think that that's mm-hmm. I think that's where I wanted him to be as opposed to being more of kind of this um you know, this wet behind the ears green reporter. I'm glad that there's a civilian angle to the war and, and how the war is being covered, but it's still being covered behind uh, and curated by the enemy, or at least in this case, Wayun. So there is a propagandist mm-hmm. media control slant to this scene, which I think is important. And it's all really about, that again, that World War II flavor of controlling the information flow so that you'll go, you're going to uh, color the the viewpoint the worldview of whoever is uh, in power and this in this case the yeah. dominion and the cardassians it it really rings true because we we hear about it all the time like the press portrayal of wars i mean you mentioned world war ii but you think about how the press portrayal and public perception of war changed dramatically with vietnam oh, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. you know that 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 had a a profound impact the the public's perception of what was happening over there and then we revisited that question uh with the first gulf war when you know they called it the nintendo war because we had all this camera footage of just these you know missiles going off sort of on their own and we're not really connected to the people who are involved in it you know so i i love that here we are in 1997 with an aspect of this story that is really universal because it keeps revisiting us when we talk not just about press coverage of war but press coverage about anything that is important politically who has access? Who gets in? How are they being spun? Do they have to make compromises because then they don't get the story at all? You know, that's where it becomes much more important to have well-placed sources and, and anonymous sources, obviously, to be able to get the full picture. Um, and there's a, this is one of the first examples that at least that I'm going to bring up and you may bring up too, John, of some pretty talented gaslighting on Wei Yun's part. Because, Ooh, yeah. in a way, he's exactly manipulating Jake the way he wants to. He's like, if you do this, then you will get to report this. And if by the very end, Jake goes from, you can't, you, you know, you can't silence the press, you can't manipulate the press into telling your story, to, okay, I'm sorry, I'll keep an open mind, what would you like me to write? Yeah. That 
I know that that particular sequence of events in reporting takes a little bit longer, but it's important that we saw that because we see how talented Wei Yun is in crafting right. his reality and letting people know that this is the only reality that's happening right now. Right. Exactly. Um, I want to talk about Worf a little bit. I mentioned in the last segment, uh, because you brought up that opening scene with Worf and Martok and Dax. And, and it is funny. Like in, in an episode that is very heavy, you need to have some moments of levity. And they found one here to play with. But I had a new thought about Worf. And I, I want to preface this by saying that I am not saying this is a joke because I would not joke about such a thing. And I am not in any way positing myself as any sort of an expert in the field. Um, I, From my perception here, I think that Worf, we're almost seeing some sort of like developmental, emotional challenge on his end. And here's why I say this. I, I know that the writers were looking for a shred of lightness. If not, you know, some comedy in an episode that is extraordinarily heavy. But to me, they chose an odd way to do it. Worf comes in from battle, but he's only obsessed with the idea of the order at the Klingon wedding in which, you know, the ritual where they kill the Targ, like when it happens. And uh, he is annoyed Martok, where apparently that's all he's been talking about for who knows how long. Mm. He's not relieved to be on Defiant. He's not joyful to see Dax. He doesn't even have a story about killing any Jim Hadar. Like like a Klingon would come in all, you know, full of uh you know the joy of victory. He he is just completely focused on his obsession about something else entirely. And maybe I'm taking that moment a little too seriously. But it did make me pause and wonder if he's all right. Like either this, if we want to take it as something that's temporary, where they have just been through hell in battle and they've been through all this. So he's got to find something else, something on the home front to give his mind a break mm. from the the horror of war. And that's how he's doing it. Or Worf is just out to lunch here i mean he, he he's there's something about him where where he's just like not connecting i thought it was a really sweet scene that he walks in and dax sort of throws herself into his like arms that, yeah. and then there's the yeah then there's the other sort of like wink and nod when they mm -hmm. leave where cisco says like don't break any bones we know what they're off yeah. to do but Worf, like i i just i question is it always right to play him as being completely humorless like that when this, I, I don't know, this scene sat very strangely with me. And I can see where you're coming from because it did seem a little strange too that the first thing that Worf says is, I have a problem with this. It's not, hello, Cisco, you know, how are you? What have you guys been doing? Did we lose anyone that we knew? You know, right, um, right. I think that it just landed wrong. I don't really think that the writers were trying to make any point of it or trying to to paint Worf in any kind of particular light. I think it just, it was a scene that needed to expedite Worf being back on the bridge or being back with the crew. Yeah. But I do see where you're coming from, where it, he's he's suffering from like obsessive compulsive uh, a character yeah. issue. And maybe it's just, and if we're going to address it the way that you see it, maybe it's just that, all he can really focus on that keeps him sane in a reality of 
the way that Klingons address war is the fact that at the end of the tunnel, he's going to have this perfect moment, this perfect wedding, this perfect time. And anything that disrupts the perfection of that in his mind's eye is something that he'll obsess over because he is being surrounded by the, the war that's just driving all of their emotions to one end or the extreme or the other. So that yeah. may be where maybe Michael Dorn interpreted the script. But I honestly think that it was just a average, below average executed scene to move all the characters into one room together. Yeah, I, and that's it. It is a functional scene in that respect. And again, I, I get the the need to inject a bit of levity in a script that is heavy and takes place during war. It sat weird with me because I kept wondering, are we saying something about Worf just in this moment or overall? And I, you know, again, I, I want Dax, just like I wanted her on Ryza, to just smack him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. just, oh, yeah, I don't know if I can spend the rest of my life with you if you're going to be like this. Well, I think that it's it's tricky because the the last scene that we saw with them together was in the season finale. And they had that really sweet, honest moment of we may never see each other again, but I'll marry yeah. you. Come back to me. You know, come back alive. Great, great scene. scene and that's what yeah. you're hoping for and it doesn't pay off when you see them next and i think that it right. it kind of is a letdown where you want to see a little bit more like you know i told you i'd be coming back you know or it's like he goes right. at least i get one opera back don't i or something you know something that is a little bit yeah. more tongue-in-cheek something that's like a little secret moment that we saw you know behind the scenes for them right. so that would have been a little bit better i think for for both of us maybe for the audience also however um, I did want to kind of like turn to, I think, a, a greater and more defined character, uh, you know, character evolution. And it starts off with him looking sexy AF with the zip with the zip down <laughs> uniform and the and rolled up sleeves. Right. And that's Bashir. Bashir took a total yeah. character turn for the better, in my opinion, yep. because yep. he just looked like, you know, he looked like he has been through a lot because right. he's the only I mean, he is pushing his genetic, uh, genetically superior genes now to the limit because he is taking care of a lot of wounded patients. And yeah. he is, you know, he's going to feel responsible for not being able to treat all of them because he has the intellect and the physical ability to do so. But it really looks like that that Sid has understood this is the Bashir of the war. You know, he's a little less, he's a mm-hmm. little less cheeky. He's a lot more driven and serious and humorless and i think it's a really interesting departure for him yeah i i agree i mean uh, like i was saying before you know they needed they needed to start having some payoff to what we learned about bashir and his uh genetic enhancement and now it's sort of like this weight has been lifted off of him you know, I, I don't just need to be goofy. I don't need to be hiding my expertise with the occasional joke or whatever. The, this war has hardened mm-hmm. him, and it has started to change his relationship with people like Garrick. And they, but they brought a physicality to that as well with Sid, and um, it, it just it it works. It completely works. Now, with Garrick being, you know, the 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 character student that he is, or the character, the, the master of observation, I really did like how he set up 
the this this character change in Bashir or how he sees it. Because Bashir said earlier on, if I'm a Vulcan, then how do you explain my boyish smile? And Garrick says, not so boyish yeah. anymore, Doctor. I was like, right. okay, okay. Because, yeah. you know, between the two of them and their lunches and their clandestine meetings and, you know, our man Bashir, they have a relationship, a dialogue. Yeah. And I think that for me, the moment where Bashir really turned and we really saw how hard this character has become is when they were when they were preparing the Jem'Hadar ship and he said I'm so glad that you find the lack of proper medical facilities amusing but if trouble breaks out it's not a view screen or a chair or even a sandwich you'll be wanting it's a bio bed with a surgical tissue regenerator and he was not joking no no yeah. that that was it. yeah we, we usually picture Bashir with that sort of like wink and nod to the camera a little James mm-hmm. Bondish you know but in this um he, he was not playing any of that for And laughs. I think that they're saying um, without saying, like, I'm seeing too many people die, and I can't. Even with my own, with my enhanced genetic abilities, I can't save this many people. And I'm just going to watch more right. people die and die and die because of this war. And when he delivered that news about the Seventh Fleet, he's like, I can't even save them. You know, uh, uh, right. an entire right. platoon of me wouldn't be able to save him from this war. So he sees yeah. it like no one else sees it. Let's uh, let's talk about whew, big topic here. Mm. Ducat and Kira. Yep. Um, I, it, for all the difficulty of the war story that's happening, I, truly, this is one of the most chilling scenes in the episode. I, I am thoroughly creeped out by Ducat, and at the same time, I'm really glad they went there with this mm-hmm. scene. Really glad because they they played in earlier episodes with this sort of weird flirtation and a little bit of power play but now it is just stomach turning uh the way he's trying to toy with her and manipulate her and i think it speaks to something that that's bigger and more interesting not just about ducat but about cardassians aligning themselves with power but being very short-sighted when it comes to principle you know for everything for Descartes it's about what is the immediate gain what is the power position to have here aligning with dominion yeah because then at least we're not getting stepped on by somebody else you know the Klingons taking over Tarek Noor okay great I get to have that office back because I got stepped on by the Federation and by Cisco before now's my opportunity to take that power back from Kira who has had this you know elevated position at DS9 and proven herself and and has had the upper hand over me on a few missions including well you know preventing him from killing his daughter so it's always about the short term, like, how do I get that power back? How do I reassert myself? And look, it, you know, the Cardassians and by Kira in particular have been told over and over that they are just pawns of the Dominion. But they would rather be on that side, be on the side of the bully as its lackey than to be the one who's bullied anymore. And it's a psychology that's easy to understand, and it makes people find it easy to push others into the out group. But what we saw here is not just, again, it's not just like the political version of that. It was a very unsettling personal version of that. And and my hat is off to them for writing a scene that went that dark 
between a couple of, uh, I won't say beloved, Kira is a beloved character. Uh, uh, Ducat is a uh, an intriguing character. I do like this scene quite a bit. It's probably my favorite scene in the episode because their performances are so strong. And it really mm-hmm. is kind of the the third act in this three-act arc or three-episode arc with Indiscretion being the first, Return to Grace being the yeah. second, and now this, A Time to Stand. Because in Indiscretion, Ducat was... He was just a lowly freighter captain. You know, he was at the low part of his career, and he was trying to do anything to ingratiate himself with Kira to get his daughter back. He was desperate, and you could smell, you could smell the desperation on him, but he wanted to show strength and prove to Kira that he was something greater. He's always doing that in the first two of these three acts, in Indiscretion and in Return to Grace, because in Return to Grace, he is doing it again. You know, he got the ship. He's trying to be the captain again. He's trying to flex his power and to step up in Kira's eyes. It's always about how he's portraying himself in Kira's eyes, in her estimation of him, which I find incredibly disturbing. And now... Now he has come back. He has reclaimed Terak Nor as he promised to do. And the first thing that he really does is try to lord that over Kira as if it would impress her or influence her in some way to drop the veil, this, this game they have, this detente that they have about this sexual tension that somehow Dukat thinks is going to progress. And when he finally puts his hand on her cheek, that prickled my whole body so intensely because that's so vulgar and so, um, you know, presumptive uh, presumptive on his part to be Mm -hmm. able to invade her physical space in that way. And that was a manifestation of his authority over what he believes is everybody now especially her and that in and of itself was like i'm getting goosebumps talking about it right now but (laughs) that (laughs) is the beauty and the majesty of mark alimo's acting in this episode it was so disturbing at the same time though you really get a sense of that dakot is still firmly attached to he's the hero of his story and and it's just about what he wins Mm -hmm. It's just that nothing in his way is of value unless he can win it, dominate it, own it. And his gaslighting, because I mentioned that Wayun gaslit Jake, it was that was nothing in comparison of what he was trying to do to Kira. He yeah. was trying to actually have her thank him for doing what he is doing at that moment and to the station yeah. and his alliance with the Dominion. The, the psychosis of that level is unbelievable but as you mentioned before john if dakot is as only as good in his power play as the dominion allows him to be so mm-hmm. if i were dakot i'd be concerned that in my quest for power and reclaiming the station and consolidating all of my allies that you actually have someone who's sort of in control of pulling my strings i.e dakot strings and that's Wayun. Mm-hmm. And Wayun is a little bit of a wild card here. And who plays wild card better than Jeffrey Combs, right? 
<laughs> but you have somebody now who you believe is on your side, and he'll appease or do anything to appease one of his gods. And in this case, this is Odo. And I love the fact yeah. that you brought up the Ghostbusters reference because that's what Kira's <laughs> asking him to do. He's like, Odo, if someone asks you if you're, you're a god, you say yes. Say yes. And yeah. now Odo flexes a little bit of that godlike power, and Yun just beckons, comes to heal. And Dukat's like, I don't know if I like this or not. Look, I, I have not watched ahead, but I, I'm just going to say right now, Odo has every opportunity to fix this. Mm-hmm. How many times have you seen Odo turn himself into a piece of furniture or a mouse or whatever other, you know, Wonder Twin form he wants to? He could end this. He's got access and he's got better access than anybody else because he can literally hide in plain sight among anything else. He, he could just one by one clear that station. What does Starfleet have that the Dominion doesn't? Let's start with an HR department. Well, as everything has to turn, 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 there is a time to stand, but there is a time to end. And that time has come where we will wrap up our discussion of DS9's start to season six, a time to stand. And here we will talk about the morals, meanings, messages, but we will also give a look at what stands up, what holds up today. So Norman, I'll, uh, I'll pose it to you first here. Does this episode hold up? I think so. I, I really like this episode quite a bit. What Deep Space Nine does well, it does incredibly well. And in my opinion, and I, and I hope that there are a lot of listeners out there that agree with me, because I do love the fact that it lets its ensemble cast shine. Rarely do shows do that. When you have this big of not just a main cast, but you also have this large secondary cast. And this episode really gave a lot of them a chance to breathe. And I know that only a handful of scenes let some principal actors, say Mark Alimo, to chew scenery and dialogue. The writing overall in this episode I thought was very sharp, on point. It moved the narrative along. It was very economical. And it gave everyone their own moment. It gave them a nice part of the rotation and how the narrative went back and forth between the station or the Defiant or the station or the Jem'Hadar ship. I felt that Everyone got at least some kind of representation from setting to setting to setting. I thought the pa- the, pa- the uh, pacing was really good. Uh, very little padding, or you should say like a lot of meat, little fat, mm-hmm. uh, very little gristle. And I didn't think that the uh, episode felt tight or rushed. I thought that there was a nice ebb and flow to it. And again, if there was one performance that I have to single out and kind of give my award for this show to, <laughs> it is Mark Alimo. Yeah. Uh, followed very closely by Nana because like that scene that I just mentioned, it is cringeworthy in that I can't stop watching way. And I think that it's it's something that I want to pay more attention to, the nuances of those performances, how they're going to flesh out that relationship. But overall, though, I think it's a great start to this new season. Obviously, there's a huge tonal shift. And let's see where it goes because it didn't end it, there's that serialization type of ending that well, we're used to in modern Star Trek, but I think was a little bit new to the process in 1997. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. And, you know, something that I thought 
in the the final summary of this episode is that when I first watched it, the first thing I thought was, you know, the plot is really buried here. The the plot is just like, like if you had to give a, a plot description and, and my recap was pretty short and, you know, we always try to keep them short, but this one was uh, almost easy. It was just like, oh, okay, uh, the crew take a stolen ship and blow up Jim Hadar's supplies. That's the plot. That's it. <laughs> but you pointed out what it is that DS9 does well and does incredibly well here, and that is put the emphasis on so much more than that by getting the most out of all those other characters. It's the scenes, it's the character moments that are memorable here. If you asked me later, you know, what's the standout thing from this episode, I wouldn't think like, oh, it's the explosion at the end with the Jem'Hadar ship. I would think, no, 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 it, it's that scene with uh, Nana and Mark Alimo. It, it's the scene with Bashir and Garrick. It's even, you know, honestly, the scenes on the Starbase where you let Cisco have a moment with his father um, over the video screen. Like, these are all the building blocks that make the characters stronger and make our investment in them that much more profound. I do love that we have, you know, we not only just talked about the payoff uh, with what we learned about Bashir, we had a little payoff from that episode, The Ship, R.I.P. Munez. Still miss you, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. But you know, there's just so much good stuff here that is about the character development and about those emotional moments. Now, does that lead into morals, meanings, messages? They don't always have to. Sometimes it's just about the emotional resonance of an episode. But I think there are a few things that I picked up here that are important. Uh, They're important points of consideration when we look at this on its own. I mentioned it before. Dukat, he is so confident in their victory. But he's premature. And this probably clouds his thinking. I think Wayun has maybe a little better grasp of things than he does. Dukat is, after all, a pawn of the Dominion. So it's sort of, for him right now, it's the illusion of strength and power that he has. But he seems to be sold on it. He he has bought into that illusion wholeheartedly. Now, John, are you saying that um, Dukat suffers from premature cardassiation? <laughs> he might. He might. It's going on a T-shirt. Um, okay. Now, I can't think of any modern-day analogies, but if you give up your principles solely to align yourself with power or even just the perception of power, you may find yourself in a much more precarious position down the road. Just leave that there for Dukat and whomever else needs to hear it. Now, speaking of power, Odo actually has some power. But where we've left it right now, he's kind of afraid to use it. Um, Maybe he's afraid of pretending to be a god, as the founders clearly have no problem with. Um, Or maybe he's afraid he'll get swept into the moral compromise that he probably easily did in the years before, back during the the original occupation. So it's interesting to see Odo, who is more challenged here by principle than he is by power. And then the other interesting nugget that we're left with is in those scenes with Joseph and Ben Sisko. And it's just, it's such a simple thing, but it is so profound. When Joseph says, you think there'd be enough room for people to leave one another alone? And Ben says it just doesn't work that way. 
And this sort of goes back to sometimes Star Trek would leave us with a message and say, war is dumb. Fighting over resources is dumb. And hopefully we're better than that, that, that we can get to a point where we're not doing that. But here we have an episode where Ben, at least in this moment, and probably a lot of people at Starfleet and the Federation like him feel like, well, I've resigned myself to this idea that the galaxy, at least as part of it, doesn't work the way that I want it to. Because you can give people space, literally and metaphorically, you can give people resources, you can lead with the best intentions, and still for others, that won't be enough. And I feel a bit heartbroken for Ben Sisko that he, he does feel resigned to that. I feel like Joseph is a voice of reason here, as simplistic as it may be. But I'm glad that there is that voice to ask that simple but profound question. It's an interesting look at the reactions to this war and the Sisko family. And I find it uh, it's an incredible character study between the three of them. Jake wants to prove himself by trying to do something proactive about telling the, the morality of what is happening or trying to get the truth out because he feels morally obligated to do so based on what his talent is. Joseph, the voice of reason, only really cares for the safety of his family. He wants his loved ones to be safe and to return home. That's, what, that's all he really talked about in that discussion and wondering why this galaxy is at war, as big as space and as infinite as space is supposed to be. Ben, at the very beginning of this episode, is so consumed with rage and with despair that you know he shatters a glass table and you couldn't help but that twitch you know, just consumed the... Uh, it just uh, was the, his tell of how much emotion that he was racked with. So, and... He's, you're right. He has resigned himself to this path, and so has the Federation, to the tune of hundreds of thousands of lives and ships and resources. So where does that leave us now as a Star Trek series? And this is where I'm trying to still come to terms with how I feel about Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. And the moral I get from this is very much to the point of that discussion between Joseph and Ben. And I think that when... When Cisco says it just doesn't work that way, it should, but it doesn't, I think that it, it, in some way, I think the writers are trying to cushion the blow for radically deciding to change Star Trek's perspective. Mm. Star Trek has always been about, traditionally has been about exploration, optimism, this vastness of space, and now they're exchanging that for what is developing into a very specific and dark and central theme of war. Now, Deep Space Nine, in my opinion, and I have seen everything now up to this point, has been telling a very specific tale from the beginning, how the Federation operates at the outermost edge of their influence and how it is on the frontier of uncharted space. But from something that could have been an exercise in exploring the vastness of this great unknown, the vastness of the of this, uh, the space in between, like Joseph is saying, or exploring the frontier of the unknown, the writers have specifically led us down this path and have narrowed their focus into very sharp and very precise narrative of the Federation at war. And even more so, even further down, uh, further focused into the personal repercussions and the effects of this war. So the optimism of exploring strange new worlds 
and seeking out new life and new civilizations, the promise of boldly going, that has changed, in my opinion. And I think it's a good change because sometimes to appreciate what it takes to explore this final frontier is to understand the sacrifices that many have had to make to protect and preserve the ideals and moral objectives of peaceful and prosperous exploration. Someone has to get their hands dirty. Someone has to endure the brutality of fighting a war against tyranny and oppression. So why not, Cisco? Mm. And why not now? Or at least, why not then in September 29th of 1997? Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Rocks and Shoals. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. In the time it takes the ship to get back to Federation space, I expect Garrick to have redesigned everyone's outfits. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair all delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.